This episode of The Thinker's Manifesto is brought to you by The Thinker's Workshop, an educational library and online community that will help you become a better thinker. Learn more at thinkers-workshop.com. That's thinkers-workshop.com. I'd like to share an old joke with you. One day, a salesman knocked on the door of a brand new house. A lady answered the door. Ma'am, the salesman announced, I am here to sell you the latest invention in vacuums. This is the greatest vacuum you will ever own, and I can prove it. Just then, the salesman dumped a vile and smelly concoction of garbage on the floor. He continued, Ma'am, if this vacuum doesn't suck up all this mess, I will eat it. The lady smiled and replied, Well, I hope you brought a spoon, because the electricity for our new house hasn't been turned on. When people of a certain age think of door-to-door salespeople, the image of a vacuum salesman probably comes to mind. Throughout the late 20th century, salesmen from major brands like Kirby, Hoover, and Electrolux traveled the country, knocking on doors to demonstrate and sell their vacuum cleaners. Some still do today. And as any salesman will tell you, selling a vacuum is not easy, especially one that is so different from what most people are familiar with. It's an experience that James, a British inventor, knew all too well. In 1978, James started to work on a revolutionary new vacuum design. He spent the next five years developing thousands of prototypes, while his wife taught art to support their family. When he finally perfected his design and was ready to start selling it, the reception to his invention was less than enthusiastic. Manufacturers didn't want the design, and a licensing deal with Amway was a disaster. So James mortgaged his house and started to manufacture his invention on his own. He got a few sales through catalogs, but it was a grind. He was just another vacuum salesman hawking his wares. But he never gave up. And in 1995, 17 years after he first started working on his vacuum design, James got a break. A major retailer in the United Kingdom agreed to start selling his invention. Within a year, the Dyson vacuum would become the best-selling vacuum cleaner in Britain. By 2005, the Dyson vacuum would become the market leader by value in the U.S. Today, the company James Dyson founded has sold his machines in over 65 countries and employs more than 1,000 engineers worldwide. It has made him a multi-billionaire. James reflected on his early days in an interview in Fast Company magazine in 2007. Here's what he said about his early failures. Quote, I made 5,127 prototypes of my vacuum before I got it right. There were 5,126 failures, but I learned from each one. That's how I came up with a solution. So I don't mind failure. I've always thought that school children should be marked by the number of failures they've had. The child who tries strange things and experiences lots of failures to get there is probably more creative. End quote. How do you view your failures? And more importantly, what does it take for you to keep going so that you can overcome failure and turn your idea into 
into a success. Welcome to Thinker's Manifesto, a podcast series that will help you think better. I'm your host, Sean Jackson. Most successful people have a failure story they like to share. They can talk poetically about the struggles they encountered and how they overcame them. They take great pride in proclaiming that they never gave up in pursuit of their goals. They talk about the values they learned from their failures that helped them achieve their success. It all sounds so inspiring, doesn't it? Except there's more to the story. Namely, the twist of fate, or what we call luck, that put them into positions that allowed them to grow past their failures. You see, for every success story you hear, there are thousands of other people in similar situations that did not find success. Their failures had no twist of fate that helped them towards their goals. Here's what Mark Cuban, a self-made billionaire and TV personality, stated about his own success. Quote, I can remember vividly people telling me how lucky I was to sell my business at the right time. Of course, no one wanted to comment on how lucky I was to spend time reading software manuals or Cisco router manuals or sitting in my house testing and comparing new technologies. He continues, quote, you have to work hard and try to put yourself in a position where if luck strikes, you can see the opportunity and take advantage of it, end quote. As you pursue your ideas and start to turn them into something more, you will fail along the way. Failure is a key ingredient of success. But just because you fail does not mean you will be successful. It is how you deal with failure that matters. In the last episode, I referenced a research paper about failure from Northwestern University. In it, the authors reviewed hundreds of thousands of scientific grant applications, venture investments, and terrorist attacks to see if they could find a statistical model to predict success and failure. And there was one key observation they found about the characteristics of those who succeeded versus those who failed. Dashun Wing, the head of the study, explained this observation in an article in Fast Company. Quote, If we look at the human dynamic, there are two basic ways of thinking about why you fail. A chance model and a learning model. We quickly realize that these simple models don't offer the answer turns out to be a very complex prediction, end quote. What he and his researchers discovered was that success came from incorporating what is learned from failure and failing again over and over and over and doing so quickly. Wayne continued, quote, if you're not failing faster and faster, you're in stagnation region and not gaining enough feedback to form intelligent improvement, end quote. The researchers make a strong point, and so does Mark Cuban. Learning from your failures is crucial for success if you incorporate the insights from those failures into your next iteration, and then try again and again and again. 
If so, then maybe one day you will be in a position to capitalize on the opportunities luck brings your way. But remember, just because you follow that formula doesn't mean your idea or effort is guaranteed to succeed. There are hundreds of people just like you in pursuit of an idea just like yours that will never find success. So what do you do when you fail? Do you give up or do you keep going? Knowing that even if you do everything right, success is not guaranteed. It is a question that I found myself facing after the failure of our Kickstarter campaign. Episode 11, Learning from Failure. March of 2019, Jared and I faced a choice. How would we proceed from the failure of our Kickstarter launch? A story I shared in the previous episode. What would we do next? Would we give up? Or would we learn from our failure and keep going? We gave it a lot of thought. Frankly, there were compelling arguments for both choices. In fact, there were more compelling arguments to give up than to proceed. Continuing on meant we would have to analyze our entire approach, from the product design to its execution. We'd have to gather a lot more data and do a lot more work just to get this idea off the ground. Sure, we could do consulting work, using our experiences to benefit others, and make a lot of money doing it. But there was one thing I could not reconcile. How would I explain to my children that I gave up at the first sign of failure? What was the example I would set for them by so quickly discarding my goals just because I failed in my first attempt? Is that really what I wanted them to learn from my effort? The answer was no. I often tell my children that life is hard, that it's not fair, and that to be successful at anything requires persistence and the desire to be better. If I quit, I knew that my words would not match my actions. And I could not live with the hypocrisy of that choice. So I decided to continue on. And thankfully, Jared agreed to continue on as well. So we made our choice. Question was, what should we do next? As we closed the Kickstarter campaign, we let the 149 backers know of our plans to continue on. But to be fair, we didn't really have a plan. At least, not yet. We just knew we would take what we had learned and continued on. And as we considered our options, we identified a glaring hole in our business, one that my business partner, Jared Morris, understood well. I mean, look, we hadn't even built authority yet. We hadn't built trust with our target audience. We had this great notebook and app, and we knew how well it would work, but we were expecting people to take our word for it before they even knew who we were. You know, Sean and I both come from a content marketing background, and that's just not how online commerce works, at least not for any type of sustained success. So we had to go back to square one and invest the time and effort to get our target audience to know us, to like us, and to trust us. That was the path to creating meaningful customer relationships and building an actual business around our ideas. What we realized is that the people that we wanted to attract were actually a very discriminating audience. 
Just because we thought we had a product to help them think better didn't mean they believed us. And hey, you know, this process of building authority isn't a one-way street. Because at the same time our audience was learning about us, we learned more about them. And what we learned is that there is a difference between someone who thinks and a thinker. We all think, we do it all the time, but only a subset of us really desire to think better and invest the time and resources to make it happen, like buying a premium notebook or exploring ideas with pen and paper. And we weren't just going to win the hearts and minds of these highly discerning thinkers casually. We'd have to work for it. So that's exactly what we started to do. We had produced the first season of Thinker's Manifesto to share our ideas about how to think better. But what we quickly realized is that just releasing the podcast was not enough. That is when Jared came up with an idea. Why not build a community of thinkers? Hey, what better way to build a relationship with a group of people and get to know them better than by organizing them into a community of like-minded folks who are all pursuing the same goal? I felt confident that if we created something valuable, a place where thoughtful people congregated together, where they also had a library of educational materials to ruminate on and use to improve their thinking, that we'd accelerate the process of building the authority that we needed with this audience to become a trusted source of tools and advice for better thinking. And, you know, while there have been some twists and turns, inevitably, overall, that's exactly what has happened. Given our successful experience in content marketing and building communities for our previous company, I immediately recognized the value in Jared's idea. Creating an online community is a powerful way to build an audience for a product or service. It also requires a lot of work. We spent that spring and summer writing and producing a series of videos we could post in our online community. We created workshops on how to deal with a crisis and developing skills and habits for better thinking, to name just a few. All of this effort so we could have something for our audience to consume and use to become better thinkers. And we felt the effort would pay off by creating the kind of trust we needed to ultimately convince these people to become our customers. And this wasn't the only thing we were working on. Based on input from our backers, we worked to redesign our notebook concept to lower the cost while simplifying the design. We also spent weeks considering the Thinker's app, mapping out the future of our technology stack while knowing that our first version was just the beginning of a new type of technology we wanted to create. Finally, by the early fall of 2019, we were ready. Our notebook order was delivered by the manufacturer. Our first version of the app was completed, and our online community, the Thinker's Workshop, was open. We were ready to put our effort out once again into the market, knowing that we had a lot more failures ahead. In the next episode of Thinker's Manifesto, we'll talk about the power of the pivot and why having a strong relationship with a segment of your target market gives you the best chance pivoting in the right direction. I hope you will listen in.